name's Sharon Meekin. I'm the Director of Studies for the NSC in Evidence-Based Healthcare. And I'd like to introduce um, and welcome to Oxford today, Susan, Professor Susan Meekin, sorry. Um, Susan comes from London, and I guess I'm, I'm stuck to know which of the highlights from Susan's career to talk about. And I guess I've, I've, we've, we talked about a couple earlier on. I think probably it's important to say that Susan started her career as a clinical psychologist, studying here in Oxford, both as an undergrad and postgraduate, so let's welcome back. Um, Susan has done an amazing amount of work um, synthesizing behavioral theory for understanding, for use of those of us who don't have a strong behavioral background, which I think is fantastic. Um, we've been talking about that a lot this week. Um, Susan's also had a strong and massive um, international um, contribution to work around implementation. So she's done a lot of work with NICE, she's worked with advisory groups in the US, Canada, Australia, which is um, an amazing piece of work. And for those of us who've been talking about complex interventions this week, we have referred to the Medical Research Council guidelines on complex intervention. Susan was an author in that also. So without saying anything further, can I welcome you to the group and invite you to talk to us tonight about a behavioral perspective of translating evidence to policy and practice. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and uh, very good to be here. I've um, been to other talks at Kellogg's College and always enjoyed them, but uh, this is the first one I've given. And um, please do ask questions or make comments as I go through the issues I'm going to raise. And it's a very big subject, so I've just pulled out some that uh, I hope we'll get a conversation uh, going. So, um, starting off with, uh, I'm sure, a, a schematic representation you're all very well familiar with, what are all the gaps between getting evidence um, into practice? Uh, we've got the very first one, um, the first gap often called, of uh, can it work in terms of efficacy? Second gap, does it work in practice? Third gap, is it routinely delivered as it should be? And the final gap, um, the uptake by the patient or public. So if one's looking at the extent to which evidence as produced in the laboratory or the equivalent if you're a behavioural social scientist and it actually being taken up and making a difference in the world out there. At all these stages, there's ways in which there's a translational gap. And what I'm going to uh, mainly address today is just this third one of implementation, um, which is what happens between the research trials and uh, clinical practice. Um, there's quite a lot that's been written about uh, waste in research. Um, so despite increasingly good evidence about best practice, much is wasted because it's not implemented. And so good quality healthcare and best health outcomes may not be achieved. And I'm going to present some ways in which um, that's the case, and also draw your attention to this uh, forthcoming series in The Lancet, which is called Reducing Waste and Inefficiency in Medical Research. The papers have been invited and they're about to be submitted, um, so I don't know what the time lag will be, um, but um, some of you will know Ian Chalmers and Paul Glasiu, so they're two of quite a large group of us who've been involved in um, writing this series. Okay, um, so what to do about this situation? If one looks at the interventions that have been designed to improve implementation, one comes to the conclusion they've had modest and very variable success. 
And I don't know if you're um, familiar with implementation science. It's an open access journal that deals with these issues. Um, so just go to any sample of um, papers in there and um, it'll be a fairly consistent story. How do we improve implementation? Um, well, at the heart of what needs to happen is we need to understand implementation problems in terms of uh, behaviour and also the whole system of behaviour. Uh, so we have health professionals, managers, ancillary staff, commissioners, policy makers, to name just the groups that um, sprung to my mind. Um, and implementation often depends on many different behaviours within these groups, but also a complex uh, system um, between them. So the first stage is really um, understanding behaviour before one jumps into thinking about how to um, change and improve it. Um, although uh, behaviour is at the heart of things, and um, if anybody doesn't agree with that, I'm sure you'll pipe up in due course, um, there is a science of behaviour, but behavioural science is very seldom used uh, to inform either intervention design or evaluation. And just to give some examples of just behaviours in terms of professional behaviours, um, the kind of things we're talking about are, and I gather quite a few of you are medics by background, making referrals, giving advice, prescribing drugs, keeping hands clean, a whole variety of uh, behaviours. Um, uh, there's a, a range of different studies, but I've um, chosen a couple here in the Netherlands, uh, estimated 30 to 40% of patients didn't receive healthcare that would be uh, described as evidence-based. And um, in the US, uh, another study showing um, up to 25% received care that was unnecessary or even harmful. Many different explanations as to why that's the case, but just to illustrate um, the size and scale of the problem that we're talking about. So what I want to do is um, talk about some of the, the problems that I think need to be addressed to help this situation. And one of them is a very basic issue, um, but the fact that interventions are not described in sufficient detail um, to be replicated or to be implemented effectively. So um, all the money that goes into the investment of very expensive trials, which in some cases establishes that interventions are effective, can then not be implemented um, because the detail's not there. And I'll show you how that um, differs when we talk about interventions to change behaviour compared to um, biomedical interventions. There's another issue, which is that um, the uh, uh, protocols for interventions that are um, used in, or, or the protocols for interventions that are trialled, often when it comes to what's delivered in practice, is very different than what's in the intervention protocols. And often that's not measured, and so we don't know what the difference is. So that's another problem that I will illustrate and say something about. Um, and finally, um, theories of behaviour and behaviour change are rarely applied. And if one doesn't have some kind of theoretical framework within which to think about one's interventions and one's evaluations, then you can show that an intervention has this, that or the other effect 
in this situation. But you're very limited in terms of understanding the mechanisms of action and therefore how to optimise interventions in the future or how best to generalise um, across different contexts. Okay, so, um, and I'm going to finish off uh, by um, presenting a kind of overarching framework of how to understand behaviour and behavioural interventions. So, first of all, the issue about uh, describing interventions. Um, as Sharon said earlier, all the interventions to improve implementation are complex in that they're comprised of several potentially interacting techniques. And they're often very poorly described. So here I'm saying it's the equivalent in biomedicine if you said a big red round pill. So anybody who's done systematic reviews of interventions to improve implementation, I think will kind of understand what I'm saying about the poor descriptions. And even where more detailed <laughs> protocols are available, the terminology that people use is very variable. So people will be describing the same thing using different language or use the same words to describe different things. So really quite fundamental problems if one's trying to uh, look at this scientifically. And these issues uh, impede replication, so actually accumulating knowledge through replicating studies. As I said before, it impedes implementation. And it also impedes evidence synthesis. How do you put things together if things are poorly described and you don't know if people are meaning the same or different things? So here's a, an example. I mean, I've taken behavioural counselling. We could have taken any, any kind of term to um, illustrate the issue. Um, here's American Journal of Public Health and a, dis a dis description of what these authors meant by behavioural counselling. So, I don't know what you think about how good that definition is, um, but uh, before, I, before you answer that, um, I'll give you another one. This is in uh, JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, um, and as you can see, a completely different um, definition of behavioural counselling. And I could ask you what you think about that definition. Um, in some ways, it doesn't really matter which is a better or worse definition. The issue is that they're different. So people may be thinking they're doing the same thing, or if you're trying to make sense of a big literature by synthesising it, and you think you're synthesising the same sort of thing, you're synthesising very different things. Um, so obviously, we need to do better than that. Uh, just to give another example of... Um, <coughs> pitting biomedicine against behavioural science. If one takes the example of uh, smoking cessation effectiveness, uh, we have varenicline, which is the most effective pharmacological intervention for smoking cessation, and behavioural counselling as evaluated by Cochrane, gold standard um, systematic review method. Okay, so let's look at the biomedical example. Varenicline, that's the intervention content. If you get varenicline, you get that. If you get that, you get varenicline. You know where you are. Mechanism of action, I won't... Can you read it from the back? Okay, um, I'll read it very quickly. Um, activity is a subtype of the nicotinic receptor where its binding produces agonistic activity while simultaneously preventing binding to A4B2 receptors. The point is that that's quite specific about how that works on the brain. 
Now we come to uh, behavioural counselling. Here's the definition. Review smoking history and motivation to quit. Help identify high-risk situations. Generate problem-solving strategies. Non-specific support and encouragement. Well, I think if I asked all of you to go out there and replicate that and videoed you, you'd all be doing totally different things. So that's the content of this intervention. Um, having seen the content, have you got ideas about what the mechanism of action is? As I said before, if we don't understand mechanism of action, we're not going to be able to improve things in the future. You're probably struggling, uh, so were the reviewers. Nothing was mentioned. Um, now, whether that's because the primary studies didn't mention it or it was too difficult to make any sense of it, I don't know. But you can see we're really on the back foot. And I've taken, this is smoking cessation, but the same is true for interventions in relation to um, implementation. Um, presumably everybody's aware of consort guidelines, which have made a huge difference in uh, improving the reporting of, of randomised controlled trials. And, they say, should report precise details of interventions as actually administered. Um, however, they don't say which precise details particularly. Um, but a very good um, paper by Karina Davidson back in 2003 identified some of the main dimensions we should think of. So first of all, various aspects of delivery. So the mode of delivery, intensity, duration, those delivering, recipients, setting. And when you read descriptions of interventions, and next time you go and read a description of implementation interventions, you get a lot of detail about all of this, mode of delivery. Um, there's also adherence to delivery protocols. <clears throat> and then also the content or the elements of the intervention. These are the active ingredients that actually bring about behaviour change. And there's usually very little about those indeed. So it's rather like uh, trying to cook a meal with lots of descriptions of all your cooking utensils, but very little about the actual food ingredients uh, to use. So I'm just going to take content and talk a bit about that. Um, but really what I'm saying about that is also true of these, these other um, dimensions. So how should we describe the content of interventions? Um, what I'm arguing is we need an agreed standard method of describing interventions that should be accessible and supported across disciplines and countries and behaviours and contexts. And we all work in so many silos, whether it's to do with particular behaviours we're studying, disciplines that we've come from, countries. Um, so uh, in Canada, it's knowledge translation. In the UK, it's implementation science. In the US, there's a lot of talk about policy improvement, improvement science. And I went to um, a conference at the end of last year in Canada that Jeremy Grimshaw hosted to try and get, I think he got about 16 of us from different disciplines together to see if we could get a shared terminology and a shared set of frameworks <laughs> about implementation, knowledge translation, whatever you want to call it. And um, uh, it was a very interesting two days. I don't think we got very far. Um, but it, it, it's a reflection of the, um, the problem. I'm going to present uh, a method of describing interventions that I've been developing, which is to um, describe interventions in terms of very specific behaviour change techniques. And what do I mean by this? 
I mean the active ingredients designed to change behaviour. They're observable, replicable, and they're basically the smallest components of an intervention that on their own in the optimal circumstances could bring about uh, behaviour change. So really trying to get down to the smallest level. Um, now, just to give you some idea of what I mean, um, this was the first, what we call it a taxonomy, this is actually a list. Um, and this was as a result of, uh, for many years I did consultancy work for the Department of Health, and they asked us to do a systematic re review. This was about um, interventions to uh, change physical activity and healthy eating. And the interventions were very heterogeneous, uh, very difficult to put together. So I thought, okay, just inductively try and look at what's in there in terms of uh, component techniques. Um, and you can see the last four, relapse, pre prevention, stress management, these are big groups of things. But there's no more detail than that in the articles, which is why they were there. Um, so at least we could begin to um, uh, define and specify the interventions using these techniques. And in order for this to be reliable, the each of them have to have quite detailed uh, definitions as to what's meant by them. So just to give an example of a couple of them, you can see that there's a lot of detail in there, just so that different authors who are say, coding the same text or wanting to describe their interventions, um, we'll be talking about the same thing. And by doing this, we were able to, um, I'm not presenting this work, but we were able to uh, use a statistical technique called meta-regression to then identify which individual techniques had an effect over and above all those heterogeneous interventions. Um, and in this particular review, we found that self-monitoring did, and we were then able to use a theoretical approach to think about what other techniques would you predict would work synergistically in a complex fashion with self-monitoring um, to bring about uh, even greater effect, and then compared the interventions that had those techniques with those that didn't, and found that they were twice as effective. So by using this approach, we were able then to make recommendations about particular types of intervention that could be easily developed that are likely to be effective. Without this, all you do is say very high heterogeneity and small to modest effects, which is usually what you get from synthesising literature. Since then, uh, our colleagues have gone on to uh, develop um, taxonomies for different kinds of behavioural domains. And we've just uh, published um, this year uh, a 93-item one that's building on all the published ones. And this has had the input of, well, we have an international advisory board of 30 people around the world who are kind of leaders in lots of different domains because we wanted this to be something that would be owned internationally and across um, you know, behavioural medicine or people who are interested in implementation or cancer, <coughs> etc. And then we've had about 50 other uh, behavioural experts across the world um, doing various kinds of uh, work to uh, produce this. It's a MRC-funded um, project um, that is, is finishing this year. So um, this is increasingly now being used to define um, uh, behavioural interventions. And um, this, as well as helping with evidence synthesis, this is also very helpful 
in uh, establishing the extent to which um, intervention protocols are reported in a faithful way or not, and also the extent to which protocols are delivered in practice. So um, back to thinking about waste and research, um, we looked at the percentage of behaviour change techniques that were specified in intervention protocols compared to those that were reported in publications. Okay, without this kind of approach, one can't look at that in any detail. So what's your guess of, this was a, a Cochrane review, again this is interventions in terms of uh, smoking cessation. So what's your guess as to what percentage? 10%, okay, what a pessimist. Uh, <laughs> it was, I mean, it, it was around, the average was less than 50%, uh, probably some of them were 10, um, but there's quite a range. Um, so this is a real problem for science. If we are doing evidence synthesis based on published reports, and it's less than half of what was in the protocol is in the published report. So a real plea, if you're doing evidence synthesis, systematic reviewing, do follow up and try and get protocols or any information from the authors um, to supplement what's in the uh, published report. Most won't respond, but then you publish that because that's an empirical finding. And the more that's, uh, the profile of that is raised, the more people will change their behaviour. It's getting much better now with electronic supplements, but still a real issue. And then if we think about, so these are what's in the protocols that finds its way into the published report. Now I'm thinking about what's in the protocols that are delivered in practice for those studies where they've actually take recorded consultations and analyse them in terms of behaviour change techniques and looked at the um, comparison with protocols. What's your guess there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some cases, yes. Uh, the, av the average is a 40%-ish or so. But what's interesting is I think that the, the, the researchers who do the careful work of actually measuring the extent to which the intervention is delivered in practice tend to be more advanced and more careful scientists. So I think um, those who actually publish this material are ahead of the game, and I reckon probably I wouldn't be surprised if your estimate's um, not more uh, um, realistic. However, I hope you can see the problem here, which is um, that if it's a different 50% that's in the intervention report, the published report, than what's lived in practice, you end up with no correspondence um, between what was going on in real life and what is published in all those high-impact factor peer-reviewed journals. So these are really key issues, and I'm amazed that we actually find anything out at all. Um, but we can really uh, improve if we can tackle some of these issues. Um, okay, so I'm just going to give an illustration of using this kind of approach to assessing the extent to which um, an intervention is delivered in practice, and also this issue about how do you establish not just does something work, but also how it works. But before I go on, I've been talking a long time, quite quickly. Any um, questions or comments on what I've said so far? Yeah. Can I ask about the previous slide, um, when you're talking about the delivery 
of protocols. These are um, techniques that were meant to be delivered, so it's not a degree of flexibility. That's no, these these were in the in the protocol as meant to be. Um, but it's a good point to raise: is that some uh, protocols uh, say. You know, you must do this, that, and the other, and specify exactly, almost scripting what people should do. And other protocols are more um, evidence-based principles that can be adapted and tailored in different situations. But they're always looking at the extent to which whatever level of specificity is in the protocol is actually reflected in practice. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. I mean, I'm just sort of thinking about how how you could sort of problem solve this, and do you think we should try and make these behavioural interventions a bit simpler, both for the practitioners that are trying to deliver them accurately? I'm looking at mm -hmm. some of your other slides, that's an awful lot of stuff that you're meant to be hitting all at, all mm -hmm. at the same time, no matter how hard you were trying, I would have thought, even on a good day, you might not make it. Mm -hmm. Maybe part of the problem would be to sort of well, I think one of the issues is that intervention protocols should be um, developed with an understanding of behaviour in mind and how people actually work. So I completely agree with your observation. I think a lot are too complicated. So we've been looking at... Um, a telephone quit line for smoking cessation and where it's absolutely abysmal this is the national yeah. quit line um, but when you look at the protocols and what they're trying to follow it's impossible so part of the problem part of the issue is actually making the protocols fit for purpose I've got a PhD student looking at that um, because that's part of the translational problem yeah I think that's a really good point Okay, um, I'm just going to um, illustrate this in terms of uh, an intervention that was um, increasing physical activity amongst those who are at risk of type 2 diabetes because of family history and a sedentary lifestyle and illustrate an implementation problem there. Um, it was... Um, designed by an excellent group in uh, Cambridge. Uh, it includes 14 behaviour change techniques, delivered by trained professionals in five sessions over 12 months, specified in very detailed manuals and protocols. Um, and the RCT was 365 people. Um, the result was the increased activity by the equivalent of 20 minutes a day. However, that was true in both the control and the intervention condition. So, uh, published in the Lancet, in terms of trial, no result. If they'd had a behavioural scientist with them, they could have seen that their control was full of behaviour change techniques. Their assessment, you know, going in for a day, having uh, lots of questionnaires where they were thinking about their own behaviour, they were getting feedback from lots of different physiological and behavioural tests. I'm sure they're getting lots of support. They knew they were going to be reassessed in six months and a year's time. You know, it, it's such a shame because, again, a lot of money gets put into this. But without having a proper control, um, I think that was affected. But you can't say it because of the um, active control condition. Anyway, that's another story. So here are the 14 uh, techniques that were 
used as part of this, and there were four different theories that underpinned um, these. I haven't really got time to go into the theories um, currently, but just to give you an idea that it was theory-based and specified by techniques. If you think about the implementation process um, of this particular intervention, there was theories of behaviour change underpinning it. This was then um, translated into techniques in a manual, then delivered by professionals, then the participant responded, and then we had the target, which was to increase physical activity. Um, we tape recorded and transcribed the sessions and then coded those transcripts into <coughs> techniques and theories and did this for both professionals and uh, participants. Okay, so 45%, uh, um, so ballpark figure in terms of what I showed you in the literature was delivered. And as you can say, see, this varies um, uh, according to technique. One of the concerns is that if you look at the, the four at the end, habit, formation, prompts, relapse, prevention, generalising skills, these are the kind of uh, techniques that are really essential for maintenance. And if things aren't maintained, obviously they're of very limited use. So that's a real concern. Also to show you that over the four sessions, it deteriorated and there were uh, changes between facilitators. Um, when we look at uh, were the techniques delivered according to the theories, and I haven't really talked much about uh, theories, and in fact this bit of work I did because I was at a conference where the people doing this uh, intervention said it's based on these theories and um, when we get the results of this trial it will then show support for these theories. And so I piped up and said, well, unless you're actually measuring what's delivered, you really can't say that. Uh, just because the theories were there in the background, it doesn't mean those theories are a good explanation for what is actually happening. And so, empirical question, we got some money and did this bit of work. So, um, these are the techniques according to these four theories. Self, theory of plan behaviour, self-regulation theory, learning theory, and relapse prevention theory. So that's showing that those that were delivered were kind of mapping onto the, uh, what was in the protocol according to theory. So, so far, so good. You know, they can draw conclusions about the theories in the protocol. However, when we analysed the participants' response and coded them according to the theories, it was a very different uh, pattern. So there's the participant response. Because you, in terms of translation, you have to go all the way down to the end if you think about the four gaps. And so this is the picture here. And so what you can see, this one here under learning theory, is that um, the professionals were uh, delivering whatever they were delivering. But the participants, their behaviour and what they were talking about were showing much more support for operant learning theory. So the message here is if you want to understand how something is working, you need to track it through all the way uh, to the end. Um, so if one's looking at which theory is best accounted for change, if you're just looking at the delivery, you'd come to one conclusion, which is self-regulation theory had by far the uh, biggest profile. But if you're looking at how participants are responding, then operant learning theory, which basically rewards is what that means, cues and rewards uh, is a better explanation. 
Okay, so just uh, finishing off on um, models and theories, um, why use these? Um, <coughs> is, is there anybody here who thinks it's a really bad idea to use models and theories in general? Because <coughs> sometimes you do get people who think, no, it's a waste of time, airy-fairy. You're all signed up to it. Okay, very good. Well, the, these are the reasons that I think we need to um, use them. First of all, I think uh, theories are a very good way of summarising what we know, bringing it together. Otherwise, all you've got are bits and pieces of empirical findings. So it's a framework where you can uh, summarise and aggregate what we know. Uh, very helpful in terms of structuring thinking and guiding research. As I said before, they identify mechanisms of action, so the evidence that can be used to improve interventions. And then also, importantly, uh, facilitating communication, because a lot of this work, and especially implementation science, absolutely needs a multidisciplinary approach. And that does mean that people need to be able to communicate and share frameworks as well as language. And importantly, um, frameworks between academics and what I'm calling knowledge users, so policy makers, intervention designers, practitioners. And the framework I'm going to present at the end uh, was developed uh, with that in mind. So um, I'm, I'm a big advocate. I mean, having said that, there's an issue about, well, which theories to select for which purposes and how best to apply them. And we're really at very early stages, I would say, of being able to address those questions well. And I've got a, another programme of research um, in that area. And one of the key things is we need simple, parsimonious, coherent and usable models. Because I'm a health psychologist and um, guilty, very guilty, our discipline is, of uh, having lots and lots of different models and often very complicated and often with very overlapping and redundant constructs in them. Not helpful. Okay, so um, Sharon mentioned earlier the MRC guidance for developing and evaluating complex interventions. Um, are people aware of the one, the earlier one back in 2003 or whatever? Um, so that was very much about um, really, well where this came from was, was the MRC I think got got fed up of throwing a lot of money at expensive trials which kept on finding interventions not being effective and one of the reasons was that people weren't putting the investment into really doing the early formative work to really think about what kind of intervention would be likely to be effective and so the first um, of the frameworks was really helpful um, I should have shown it here, but in terms of um, putting more <coughs> emphasis on this early development feasibility and piloting stage. But the first framework said you start here and you do that and then you have exploratory trials and definitive trials and then at the end you think about implementation. Big problem because you could get, when you think about those four gaps in translation, you can get uh, interventions that work very well in trials and then people think ah well now let's roll it out nationally and think ah okay not going to work because of this that or the other hadn't been thought of so one of the reasons for doing this 
um, was to put implementation, put it in a circle, put implementation here so that you need to think about implementation at the very first stages when you're first designing um, interventions. So that was um, part of uh, what was behind this uh, kind of new, new um, framework. And here I've just circled um, two ways in which theory uh, has been highlight highlighted, both in terms of uh, developing the intervention to begin with, having an idea about how the intervention is likely to work, and then making sure that that's followed through in terms of evaluating it. So you evaluate, well, if it did work, did it work for the reasons that we postulated at the beginning? Any questions about that? No? Okay, um, so now I'm going to um, just say a bit about um, applying theory to systematic reviewing and evidence synthesis. Um, there was a Cochrane review in 2006 about audit and feedback, which is a very commonly used intervention to change professional practice and try and improve evidence-based practice in clinical situations, uh, defined as any summary of clinical performance of healthcare over a specified period of time that's uh, fed back. Okay, 118 trials and the, the usual, you know, <coughs> Yes, it's effective to some extent, massive uh, variation um, over studies. And when they tried to think, well, what explains variability? They compared intensive, moderate, and non-intensive audit and feedback. Um, any of you who are used to audit and feedback, what is your understanding of intensive audit and feedback? Do you want to hazard a guess? What, what do you think intensive audit and feedback means? Is it daily? <laughs> daily, okay, there's, there's one suggestion. Somebody, somebody calling you up and... <laughs> okay. Harassing. Yeah, right. Daily harassment, we've got to, yeah. Monthly. Sorry? Monthly during m meetings. Okay, so at meetings, so we've got a kind of idea of frequency, kind of mode of delivery. I think it's the intensive might be just looking at each and every aspect of the practice. Okay, okay, right, so kind of comprehensive type of thing. Point of care prompting. Okay, okay. These are all good suggestions. Um, this is what they came up with. So individual reci recipients getting the audit feedback and having a verbal format, i.e. saying it in words, or a supervisor or senior colleague as the source, and moderate or prolonged feedback. Bet you wouldn't have come up with that. Okay, uh, non-intensive, group feedback, not from a supervisor or senior colleague, all individual feedback and written format and containing information about costs or numbers of tests without personal incentives. And moderate, any other combination of characteristics <laughs> intensive or non-intensive group. So I read this and I thought, okay, they did not have a behavioral scientist involved, this looks like nonsense to me, and I no rationale for it. Yeah, expensive Cochrane review. Those of you who do Cochrane reviews, I don't know how much it costs for a Cochrane review. I wrote to the authors and said, what was your rationale? They said, we didn't have one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and okay, I'm, I'm singling this out. Sadly, this isn't unique. It's not unique at all. 
so in that, I won't go back to it, but basically there's a mixture of modes of delivery and content. Uh, there's no theoretical rationale for it, so no surprising they couldn't find any pattern effect. And there were a few recommendations for practice, and uh, Robbie Foy here says, audit feedback will continue to be an unreliable approach to quality improvement until we learn how and when it works best. But we're not going to learn by that sort of approach. So uh, I thought, okay, let's reanalyze all of this data set um, using behavior change techniques and some theory. So we generated theory-based hypotheses concerning effectiveness. We independently coded, we just took 13 uh, papers, and we identified 28 behavior change techniques from that, and we grouped them into three lots of things. So goal or standard setting, feedback, <coughs> and action planning. Did that reliably. I'm just going to whiz through this, but this gives you an idea of how we broke it all down, exactly what was happening. Those were aspects of goals. Um, then feedback, lots of different aspects of feedback, but we start with a very basic description and then work upwards. We wouldn't have had a theory of evolution if Darwin hadn't done his careful, you know, tiny descriptions of everything. And then action plans, various different aspects of action plans. Okay, and we generated some hypotheses, um, uh, published in the Social Science and Medicine. And this was a theory we used. Okay, self-regulation theory I mentioned earlier. This is a very simple representation, but basically a homeostatic <coughs> mechanism. And we're doing this all the time. You know, we have goals or standards for our performance. We compare our current behaviour with that standard. Um, if we notice a discrepancy, we take certain um, steps to reduce it. Now, if people don't have um, a goal where they've got something to compare their behaviour with or they don't have anything they can do about it, then there are problems. Um, so one would predict that having uh, an intervention that included a goal or a standard would be helpful, along with the feedback, along with the action planning. So, for example, right now, I've got uh, a goal to keep you interested for the next 10 minutes, and so I'm monitoring, and if you fall asleep, I'll probably change my behavior. So I've got action plans that I can, I can <coughs> do. So very simply, from that theory, feedback should be more effective when there's a goal or target. Okay, this seems blindingly obvious, okay? But uh, it, people don't use this. And most effective where you've got an action plan for if you see a discrepancy. <coughs> Okay, does that make sense? Yeah? So, so, so yeah. you're creating this theory as you just extracted the different interventions. You, you haven't looked at the results or anything at this stage. Not at this stage. From what you've taken out, you're coming up with a theory. Yeah, so looked at order and feedback, had to think about it. I actually haven't presented it in the best order here. Thought, okay, here's a, here's a theory that would um, explain how it's working with certain techniques and then, think, instead of that funny way of uh, categorising interventions, categorise them in terms of aspects of goals, action plans and feedback. Okay? And so, very simply, we were saying that if you've got a goal as along with the feedback, it'd be more effective than only feedback. And if you've got a goal, feedback and you've got an action plan, so you've got something you can do about it, if you see a discrepancy, 
between the goal and your current performance, then it'd be most effective. Right? Very simple. Okay, so within that review, there were 61 comparisons for feedback only. This tells a story, just this data I'm going to tell you now. Feedback plus goal, eight comparisons. Feedback plus goal plus action plan, three comparisons. So we weren't able to do the analysis. There wasn't enough data. And bless social science and medicine, they were interested in the approach enough to um, publish a paper that said, well, we can't do anything about it. But this shows that if the primary researchers had an idea about behavioural science, they'd be doing different research to begin with, because obviously systematic reviewing, you can only review what's out there. So that was all rather sad. But Noah Ivers came along on his white horse in 2012, updated the review, got enough data, took on board um, our approach, and they so had 140 trials, the usual thing, small effect, big variation. Um, moderator analysis guided by these theoretical predictions, and he found out that audit and feedback is more effective when combined with explicit targets and an action plan. And the review calls for better reporting and explicit use of tools <coughs> to develop hypotheses. So, um, so that's, that kind of approach could be used with a lot of different systematic uh, reviews. And I think if we want the maximum out of what we're putting in, then we should be using, first of all, deconstructing interventions into their component techniques and using theory to guide the analyses. Three more minutes, and uh, then over to you. Uh, yeah, sorry. I take your point about behavioural psychologists and having them in the team, but yeah. not everybody will have access to you. Yeah. What, what's the suggestion that in, in that sense? We, we well, just pester and try and find well, I say behavioural scientists. So it's not just psychologists who've got an understanding of, um, of, of behaviour. Um, but that's why we have collaborations across cities and, and countries. And, um, you know, I know when NIHR was setting up its programme grant board, Adrian Grant, who was chair of it, um, I was on the board, and, and he said, well, we need people like you on all the different NIHR funding bodies, and there aren't people like you. And I said, yes, there are people like you. And I sent him 20 names, and he put somebody on all those different boards. And so they are there now to, you know, at least advise on, on the, the funding. Um, so, you know, there are people around, and yeah, yeah, you just dig them out. Um, and we'll talk afterwards wherever you're working. Okay, um, so finally I just want to um, present a framework that was uh, developed as a result of working with um, policymakers, where um, often they come with new frameworks um, to do with behaviour change and say, what do you think about this, what do you think about that? And Usually they're all right in parts, but a bit muddled or a bit too complicated. Um, so I thought, well, it's an empirical question. Why don't I just look and see uh, what's out there in terms of frameworks? Um, and um, conducted a systematic review and um, evaluated them in terms of thinking, uh, do they have a clear link to a model of behaviour? Because... If interventions don't start with really understanding behaviour, they're not that likely to be effective. Are they coherent and do they have comprehensive coverage? 
and importantly, are they usable by and useful to policymakers, service planners, and intervention designers? Okay, uh, thought experiment for you. Uh, <coughs> this is the model at the heart of this framework. Uh, so the question is, for behaviour to change, what three conditions need to exist? And anybody who's read my paper on the behaviour change wheel need not answer. <laughs> for the rest of you, just um, think about what needs to change for behaviour to change. The, um, the model of behaviour at the heart of this is called COMBI. So B stands for behaviour. So the three factors are something between C, O and M. Have you read my paper? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? We've probably all read the papers. <laughs> well, for those of you who haven't, in US legal system, to prove that somebody's committed a crime, you have to prove three things. That the person had... Motivation. Motivation, that's the M. Right. Opportunity. Opportunity, and the O. And the skills. Yep. And the comprehensive skills. Okay. It's capability, exactly. Very good, there we go. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I put this in terms of um, a system with double-headed arrows because if one's wanting to change behaviour, then one can uh, change motivation directly, but also you can go through capability and opportunity. And by changing behaviour, there's a knock-on effect back on capability, motivation, opportunity. So this is a really simple way of thinking about behaviour, but really useful. So if you're working with anybody, thinking about changing behaviour, um, I'd really recommend um, helping people think about this. And government, in government, they love it, all departments, um, because it, you know, they can understand it and they can apply it, it makes sense. One can get a bit more complicated. Um, so capability, oops wrong direction. Um, the psychological, which is basically knowledge and skills or physical ability. This motivation uh, is reflective and automatic. These are kind of psychology terms. But reflective is the um, systematic, reflective, conscious decision-making, weighing up pros and cons. Okay, rational approach to, uh, to um, behaviour. And we all like to think those are the influences on our behaviour. The truth is that a lot of our behaviour is influenced by more automatic mechanisms to do with drives, urges, um, emotions, habits. Has anybody read the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah, okay, so it's all about uh, this. And um, Daniel Kahneman's written a very good book too, Fast and, Thinking Fast and Slow or something, which is about these two uh, systems. Anyway, we could have a whole talk on that. But basically, really important to think about the two aspects of motivation. And opportunity, <laughs> obviously the physical environment, but the social environment is absolutely key in terms of influencing behaviour. And Sharon said some of you have been working with the theoretical domains framework, which is um, a, another framework I've developed. And I can send to Sharon uh, after this a, a different talk, which shows that basically the theoretical domains framework is more complicated. So those six are basically subdivided and you get to the framework that you've been working with. Okay, so systematic review identified 19 frameworks. And this was health, environment, culture change, social marketing, etc. 
none of them uh, met the criteria that we'd, uh, all the criteria that we'd um, uh, identified. And so what we did was um, put the, this combi model of behaviour at the hub of a wheel, and then all those 19 frameworks, uh, we um, synthesised them, and there were basically nine intervention functions that they fitted into. This is published in Implementation Science and Open Access and lots of supplementary files. So actually, if you just Google Behaviour Change Wheel, you'll get to it. But it shows all the different frameworks and all the steps we, we went through to synthesise them. But basically, nine intervention functions. And then we identified that some of um, there were different two different levels, and some of them were what we call policy categories. Uh, so these were categories um, of things that could enable or support the interventions to occur. And um, here's the combi model, but I've put it into a hub of a wheel like this. And these are the interventions. So we've got restrictions, education, persuasion, incentivization, coercion, training, enablement, modelling and environmental restructuring. And the behaviour change techniques I showed you before, each one of these will have many behaviour change techniques uh, that can be used uh, to, to uh, deliver an intervention. And then the uh, policy categories that were there to support and enact these, starting up there, guidelines, environmental and social planning, communication marketing, legislation, service provision, regulation and uh, fiscal measures. Um, NICE currently is uh, updating its behaviour change guidance and so it's been uh, poor systematic reviewers who are doing the work for them. They've had to use the behaviour change technique approach and all of this uh, to try and make sense of uh, their evidence syntheses, which is kind of an interesting process. Um, okay, I hope we've, I've left enough time for a, a bit of a discussion. Um, so, summarising, uh, I hope I've convinced you that uh, implementing evidence-based practice depends on behaviour change, um, that interventions um, have been only moderately effective and this could be improved by improving methods and uh, using behavioural science and specifically uh, better methods for specifying interventions, ensuring good fidelity of delivery and theoretical understanding of behaviour. And just acknowledgements, uh, Robert West and Mary Johnson who are key collaborators in this work and my research team and then I'll leave the behaviour change wheel up there for discussion. So thank you.